thanks for being here. We're glad that you are here. Uh, we, we don't take uh, an offering where we pass a plate uh, here. If you're visiting with us, uh, we can, uh, you can collect and give your offerings at the connection or at the, at the doors um, as an expression of just your worship, your stewardship. And we just want to remind you as well, in your seat near you, there's a card where you can turn in some prayer requests. And at the end of our service, we're also going to have some people who are down front here under this hope sign and this love sign. And if there's something you'd like for us to pray with you about, um, and this doesn't mean that, you know, you're the worst of all sinners and you're coming to repent in front of everybody. If you just would love for someone to pray with you about some things going on in your life, we have people on our prayer team who are down here who would love to be praying with you. Uh, I also want to let you know that next week, Super Bowl Sunday, is an opportunity for us to help Bethlehem House uh, restock their pantry. They have had um, a lot of uh, things through the cold weather, uh, a lot of use uh, of their, um, their resources there. And so next Sunday, we're asking you to bring cans of soup, anything that fits into that category, chili, something in a can that would go in a pantry that could be used long-term at Bethlehem House. Uh, you can drop it off here, and we'll have a place for you to bring that. So we appreciate you participating in that this Sunday. Um, as we continue to work through our survey of the Bible, uh, what we're going to do now is pretty important in terms of the next few messages in this series. Um, for Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, um, we need some historical background and some ways to kind of put all of this stuff together. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through some of the outworking of this, God working in his people during this period of time. If you remember, the Pentateuch sets up how God is working. God wants to be in fellowship with us, Genesis chapter 1. Um, but we messed it up, Genesis chapter 3. And he's got this plan uh, where he's going to fix all of that and restore his rule in the world, first spiritually with Christ's first coming, and then um, kind of politically and nationally with Christ's second coming. It's, it's God fixing things. And, and God sets all that plan up, and how we walk with him uh, is set up during in, in the Pentateuch books. By the way, the, the, the Pentateuch never assumes that anyone lives perfectly. Um, a righteous person is not someone who lives without sin. A righteous person is a person who knows what to do when they sin. And the Bible assumes that. The Bible assumes that the only righteous person is going to be the Son of God. And, and we have to have some ways in which we understand when we fall short and what we do with that. And that's what the Pentateuch sets up with the laws and the sacrificial system. It's assuming that there's going to be broken fellowship and it's how you get back into fellowship with God. But then when we get to the historical books, we're going to start to see all of this working itself out. And I'm going to put that together for you. And in just a few moments, we're going to stand up. We're going to have some hand motions. It'll be a little bit like dancing in church. If that's a little problem for you. Just prepare yourself. It's not really dancing, but it might feel a little bit like that. Uh, but what I want to do is put it together historically for you. So this is a chart that we use that shows kind of the flow of the Old Testament. And there's 11 books that if you read those 11 books, they're on that one line right there, kind of in the middle. If you read those 11 books, you'll be reading the storyline of the Old Testament. All of the other books kind of fit in below that into the storyline. Up above that line, I've got some people and events and uh, some major things related to the kingdom of Israel there. So let me give you just an orientation to this with some round numbers, okay? I'm working with round numbers here. Um, the life of Abraham, you can think of that around 2000 BC. Um, technically, he's born in 2166. He, buys, he dies in 1991. But to kind of give us a, a marker, Abraham is around 2000 BC, Moses, we're going to put him about 1500 BC, about 500 years later. 
technically he's born in 1526, he dies in 1406. The exodus from Israel is 1446, and then he dies 40 years later, right at the end, after they've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. So we've got Abraham at 2,000, we've got Moses at 1,500, and then we're working here with, with David at about 1,000. Now, technically, he's born in 1140. He's going to rule until he dies and Solomon takes over in 970. But some round numbers, just to kind of put some of these things together for you, you've got Abraham at 2,000, uh, Moses at 1,500, and David at 1,000, okay? Um, after David is ruling during that time, the, the kingdom is united. There's a 120-year period where um, all of the different tribes that have been divided up, and they've been kind of scattered in a mess, they get united into a kingdom under three kings. We're going to look at two of them today, and when we get to kings, we'll look at the first part of uh, first kings, we'll look at Solomon. But there's a united kingdom under Saul, David, and Solomon. Solomon is going to leave a divided kingdom because his, his son, uh, Rehoboam, and his army general, Jeroboam, vie for who's going to control the Boam boys. And Jeroboam and, and Rehoboam divide the kingdom. And there's a divided kingdom with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And that lasts for about 400 years. Okay, so here's, this is the flow. What we're looking at is First and Second Samuel. In the Hebrew gathering of the books, though they're just one book. It's the books of Samuel. And so I'm going to cover them together. I'm going to cover both books today. Uh, when we come back together in this series, we'll do the books of Kings, and then we'll do the books of Chronicles. Um, they, they had to be separated into two books eventually because they just didn't all fit on one scroll. But they, they, they have a unified message, so we're going to look at them together. I want to zero in on this period right here, okay? Um, Saul is going to begin his reign in 1050. He's going to rule for about 40 years. David is going to start his reign. He's anointed before this, but he starts reigning in 1010. He's going to reign for about 40 years. And then Solomon is going to start his reign in 970. He's going to reign for about 40 years. Altogether, about 120 years. Okay, so that's what takes place. Now I want to talk about the spiritual condition of these three kings of the United Kingdom. Saul has no heart for God. He starts well. God uses him. He's even empowered by the Spirit. But eventually it becomes clear that he has no heart for God because when he sins, he makes excuses, he doesn't confess. He's kind of the exact opposite of what David does. And David is a man who has a whole heart for God. He's not perfect, but when he sins and he's confronted with it, he confesses and he recognizes that, that God is gracious. And, and what he does is he kind of leans towards God. Even when he stumbles, he gets up and he's leaning towards God. His son Solomon has really a half heart for God. He's, he's kind of devoted. God blesses him, but his heart is really torn between loving the Lord and, and pursuing um, other passions in his life. So this is kind of how all of this fits together. Now, Solomon, who leaves this kingdom divided between his son and his army general, um, he's going to leave this kingdom that we're going to talk about here. And um, Here's, here's how this kind of works itself out. The north is Israel, okay? Now, before this period in time, the whole nation is just called Israel. But the north, where Jeroboam is going to establish a kingdom, apart from Jerusalem, where the, the tabernacle is and the temple is built, that's the, that's the group in the north. The group in the south is Judah. It's really Judah and Benjamin who unite. This all goes back to 
um, some conflict between <laughs> with Jacob and his wives. But, but the southern kingdom is Judah. The northern kingdom is Israel. There's 10 tribes in the north. There's um, only two tribes in the south, north and the south. Um, in Israel, there are 19 kings. We're not going to get to them today, but when we get to the book of Kings, we're going to see there are 19 kings in Israel, and there are 20 kings in Judah. Okay? When we get to Kings, you'll see it, it kind of bounces back and forth between all of those kings. In Israel, there are zero good kings, none of them. In fact, most of them are horrible. They're establishing false religion. Uh, they're trying to do something to compete with the worship of Yahweh in Jerusalem, so they have to come up with other ways to, to worship. Zero good kings in the north. And in the south, if you're really generous with all the guys who even start well, then go bad, but anybody who kind of starts well, um, there are eight good kings. Two of them are superb, Hezekiah and Josiah. They lead long revivals during their whole life, okay? So this is how all this thing fits together. Now, what I want us to do is I want us to memorize this, okay? And then we're going to get some hand motions going here. So what we're going to do is we're going to take this map right here, okay? So imagine that that map is now sitting in the, in the audience right here, okay? So now I'm going to have everybody stand up, and we're going to start moving through all of these events, okay? Now let's remember that we have a united kingdom on this map, and that united kingdom is 120 years, okay? Then the kingdom is divided, Israel in the north, and Judah in the south. Because Israel in the north has no good kings, pretty soon they are going to be taken into um, oblivion by the Assyrian Empire. They're going to be wiped out. About 150 years later, 722 is when the Assyrians take the northern kingdom and wipe them out. 586, the Babylonians are the major power in the world now. And in 586, the Babylonians are going to take the southern empire and take them away into captivity. Okay? Now, we're going to put some of all this together first, okay? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start off by talking about the United Kingdom. And what I need you to do is take your hands and put them above your head with kind of a un United Kingdom, okay? So we're going to say United Kingdom, and then I need you to give me the parentheses up there, and we'll say 120 years, all right? So let's do that. On three, one, two, three, United Kingdom, 120 years. Now we're going to talk about each one of the kings. And what we're going to do is we're just going to take our hands, put it by our heart, and we're going to say Saul... No heart. Now, some of you are already doing it. You're kind of cute. You have your heart like that. That's fine. I don't care. Um, just give me hands by your heart. We're going to say Saul, no heart. Then we're going to say David, whole heart. Because David is, is a man whose heart is after God. Doesn't mean he's perfect, but he's continuing to pursue God. So it's Saul, no heart. David, whole heart. And Solomon, half heart. So I need you to divide your heart in half. And we're going to say half heart. And then right after that, what we're going to do is we're going to take our hands and go above our heads and say divided kingdom, because this half-hearted king leaves a divided kingdom. Now I need parenthesis again, 400 years. All right, let's put all that together, okay? On three, one, two, three. United kingdom, 120 years, Saul, no heart, David, whole heart, Solomon, half heart, divided kingdom, 120 years. You guys are doing great with your hands. Oh, 400 years. Sorry. <laughs> you guys are doing great with your hands. Um, I want to engage your mouth too. So let's hear this, okay? Um, now we're going to put a couple more pieces together here. Um, when we put the divided kingdom together, I need everybody to turn. And remember, this map is on the floor. 
And what we're going to do is we're going to just put all of these things together, and we're going to just go back and forth. We're just going to go north. You point to the north. It actually is north, by the way. But remember the map. It's north, south, Israel, Judah, 19, 20, the number of kings, and zero and eight. We'll just do that pretty quickly, okay? So let's just start with the divided kingdom, okay? On three. One, two, three. Divided kingdom, 400 years, north, south, Israel, Judah, 1920, zero, eight. All right, you got it? Let's put it all together, all right? Put it all together. This is this period of time that is going to be covered in Samuel Kings, and then it's going to be reviewed again in Chronicles from a different perspective. Um, At one level, Samuel and Kings is the perspective from the palace. Chronicles is the perspective from the temple, okay? It's more of a spiritual evaluation of things. But let's put all this together historically, because these are the areas we're going to cover, okay? So on three, one, two, three, United Kingdom, 120 years, Saul, no heart, David, whole heart, Solomon, half heart, divided kingdom, 400 years, north, south, Israel, Judah, 1920, zero, eight. By the way, before you sit down, it all works um, numerically and um, alphabetically. N is before S, north and south. I is before J, Israel and Judah, 1920-08. And it even works if I had worked it in there yet, but we're not quite there. Um, Jeroboam is in the north. Rehoboam is in the south. It's all alphabetical and numerical. It all works. So one more time, okay? One more time. One, two. I'm sweating, by the way. (laughs) One more time, okay? On three. One, two, three. United Kingdom, 120 years, Saul, no heart, David, whole heart, Solomon, half heart, divided kingdom, 400 years, north, south, Israel, Judah, 1920-08. Great. You've danced in church. Yay. Okay. Now, uh, what we're going to cover here is the books of Samuel, and it is First and Second Samuel. I'm going to talk about it that way, but I'm also going to talk about it as the books of Samuel, because they're a united whole, okay? And what they do is they move from the madness of the time of the judges. In fact, the time frame reaches back into the time of the judges. Samuel and Samson are probably contemporaries. Um, Samuel's life probably takes place after the story of Ruth, but we know because of what's going on with the Philistines, they're part of the sea people who kind of invade this area around 1200 B.C., because of the presence of the Philistines, we know that, that this is the period of time we're working with, with Samuel, Samson, during that time of the book of Judges. It's going to come out of that, from that madness of the time of the Judges, corruption, um, disunity, um, even within the priesthood that we'll see at the beginning of the story with Eli, things are, things are horrible. And we're going to move from that time of madness to this united monarchy under Saul and David. We don't quite make it to Solomon. Now, um, years ago in 2002, um, I did 15 messages on the life of David. I wasn't really going through First and Second Samuel. I was kind of picking some things in the life of David. Just curious. First hour, there was a huge blow to my ego. Just a huge blow to my ego. I asked, how many people remembered that series? Okay. Not many people raised their hand. Then I said, how many people were here in 2002? A lot of people raised their hand. Oh my gosh. Um, so I'm just going to ask one. I can't deal with it twice. How many of you were here in 2002? Okay, you heard this series. Okay, so that's all I want to do. Um, 
all of these stories um, are, are designed to teach us lessons. Now, eventually, these stories are to show that our Redeemer is a king. He's not just a, a person. And so we have to develop a nation with a king to have a, have a nation so he can be a king, and then that king will die for us, then he'll come back to rule. But they're all embedded in these stories. Al Ross says this, The reason God uses biography to reveal his truth in so much of Scripture is that we can identify with it. The circumstances change. You may not be an Iron Age king like Saul, David, or Solomon, but human nature does not change. God allows us to see his will revealed in the lives of people and how it worked out and how they make choices. We're seeing this. We can identify with him. Yes, there's some examples that we should look look at, and probably Samuel's the one who's the best, but there's even some questions with Samuel near the end of his life. Unfortunately, we can identify with Saul, who doesn't hear the voice of God. We can identify with David, who does some things right and then has some colossal mistakes. Um, but these, these books are written to, to help us identify this is how the people of God um, have handled life and how um, they should handle life. And David really is the example of that. He makes colossal mistakes, and there are consequences to that. But he continues to lean towards God all the way to the end of his life. I'm going to do one other thing real quickly just to show you. Um, at this point, a lot of these events in First and Second Samuel, the life of David in particular, they show up in the Psalms. Okay, So any good study Bible in the Psalms is probably going to have a, second, a section in the introduction to the Psalms that shows you where those psalms are related back to historical events. For instance, Psalm 90 is a psalm of Moses. It goes back into the, the book of Exodus, okay? But a lot of these events in First and Second Samuel show up because David is writing poetic material about these events that take place in his life. Now, I need to set up a couple of other things before we get into the material itself. There, there are kings here, okay? So Saul is, is their choice of a king. David is God's choice of a king. God knew there were going to be kings. Back in Deuteronomy 17, the whole chapter is, is really important. But in Deuteronomy 17, God says this, When you enter the land the Lord your God has given you, and have taken possession of it and settled it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the other nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. This is one of the most important things. Make sure the leaders are people that God is choosing, not people that you choose, because we always choose based on the wrong thing. We'll see that in just a moment. Um, God is going to say after this, um, don't let that king multiply horses or um, armies or wives, because that's going to cause trouble. That's exactly what happens with Saul, David, and then big time with Solomon because it messes everything up. During this presentation of who this king should look like, the king that God will choose, it goes on to say this, when he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law take from that, taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites, and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom Israel. Um, the ideal king, okay? The ideal king is the king God chooses, and the king who 
takes God's law and is meditating on it day and night. He's the example for the people. He doesn't say, I'm doing this because I'm better than the people. I'm doing this because I'm the example for the people. The king is supposed to have the law. And in fact, when we get into the books of 2 Kings, it's those kings who every now and then, eight of them, two of them in particular, when they find the law, because there's been such idolatry going on, people aren't even reading the law. When the king finds the law and begins to read it, revival breaks out because they go back to this. So this, is, this book is going to present kings, but they have to be chosen by God and, and living by the law. The book also is going to highlight that God looks at the heart. 1 Samuel 16, when, when David is being anointed, Samuel shows up. Um, by the way, Samuel is just this intimidating figure. When he, I, don't, I don't think we take him significantly enough in Scripture. He's a judge, like Samson and Gideon, those guys. He's a judge. Um, he's a prophet, and he's a priest. When this guy shows up, um, he can muster an army as a judge. He's a spokesman for God as a prophet, and, and he's the guy who is able to kind of help you deal with your sin as a priest. He's, he's the whole package. When he shows up into town, you just read it in, in Scripture, when he shows up in town, everybody's like, oh my gosh, why are you here? Um, he is a huge representative of God. He shows up to anoint David as the king. But who he sees first is David's older brother. But the Lord says to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Boy, that's, that's a huge thing that I want us to learn today. If you don't learn anything else, learn this. It's not the outward appearance, popularity with whatever your group you want to be popular with. It's your heart before God. That's what really matters. That's what God looks at. Now, in the middle of all of this, because David is God's chosen person and David is really leaning towards the Lord, God makes a covenant with him. 2 Samuel chapter 7, it's really critical, it's, it's important um, that God makes this covenant. Here's what he says. Now then, tell my servant David, this is Nathan the prophet speaking, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. I'm going to bless you. This is going to be a significant thing. He goes on to say this, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house. And by that, he means a dynasty, not a building. It's going to be the house of David. Um, he's going to establish a dynasty for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish, I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That forever word is really important because um, there's only way, only way you can have a kingdom that lasts forever is if you have an eternal succession of son after son after son after son. We know that doesn't happen because the kingdoms, both north and south, they're going to come to an end. There's one other way, though, you can get an eternal kingdom, and that is if one of the kings lives forever. And that's how this is going to be fulfilled. When Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this, he's going to build a house, not the shadow of it that, that we have in the tabernacle and the temple. He's going to build the real house where we worship the Lord forever and ever. God looks at the heart. Um, God wants people to be spiritual and be an example. 
And, and we do the best we can, but the real fulfillment of all of this is Jesus. That's what's happening in First and Second Samuel. Some good examples, some bad examples. There's good, there's bad, there's ugly. It's all pointing towards Jesus. Danny Hayes summarizes it this way. First and Second Samuel are primarily about David, the hero and the one who delivers Israel from the mess at the end of the book of Judges. Samuel is an important character, but his role is transitional. He institutes the monarchy and anoints the first two kings. Likewise, King Saul, the first king, is but a foil for David, the main character and second king. Saul is a stumbling, bumbling bumpkin whose role in the story is to provide a contrast to David and to remind everyone what happens if people choose their leaders by looking at externals rather than internal character. David is a man after God's own heart. David is courageous and trusting in God. After he becomes king, he completes the conquest on hold since the days of the death of Joshua. David establishes Jerusalem as the capital. He brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, and he reestablishes the national worship of the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God even makes a special covenant with David himself. And you would think, okay, this is a great way to end the book. Unfortunately, the story does not end on a high note. We discover that David is not a sinless Messiah. He is but a mere man. His affair with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah are shocking and scandalous. After this serious sin, God forgives him personally, but no longer sustains his kingdom, which starts to fall apart rather quickly. Before the Bathsheba event, everything in David's life goes well, but after that event, everything goes bad, and, has, and his life in general unravels, and we are left to look at the future for the real Messiah. Um, this story kind of starts with this transition with Samuel coming out of the book of Judges. Now we're going to have some kings. He anoints them. They choose their own. Sometimes God lets you do that. He lets you choose what you get, and you get what you choose. You get a Saul sometimes when you make your own choices. But when you take God's choice, um, you can have some great blessings, but because he's not the Messiah, it, it becomes revealed very, very clearly that, that David is not sinless. Um, he's a great example. He, he's got a heart for God, but he... he allows the power to go to his head, really. Once he gets the power, he says, I can take advantage of anything. And so he's supposed to be going to war. He stays back home while the, while the other soldiers in the nation is at war. He stays at home. Um, he sees Bathsheba, sins with Bathsheba, and then murders her husband. And after that, he's confronted with his sin, and he admits it. He says, I've sinned against the Lord. He's forgiven, but there are going to be consequences. There are going to be consequences. And his life after that sin does start to unravel. His family, the nation, everything begins to go downhill and unravel. God has forgiven him and is still with him, even though there are consequences. And I want to remind you, um, when you sin, there are consequences. <laughs> but when you're restored into fellowship with God, the blessing you have is this, God's with you. When, when you confess your sins and you're restored back into fellowship with him, he's with you through the consequences. And that's what's the most important thing, is that he be with you. Now, all of these guys, Saul um, and David, they really make huge mistakes. Um, and, and I want to highlight this with a quote from a book I re recommended a few weeks ago, um, Julie Slattery's book, um, God, Sex, and Your Marriage, which, by the way, is an interesting book to carry around if you're going to doctor's appointments and you kind of have it. And people, what are you reading? Uh, God, Sex, and Your Marriage. It's kind of, take it on your Kindle is what I would advise you. Um, but gosh, what a, it's such a great book, and I would highly recommend it. 
um, for every, every couple, every married couple, because this issue in our world especially is fraught with difficulty and difficult things to navigate. And what she does is she sets up this model of, of the purpose for our marriage and the purpose for even our, our physical relationship with one another. The purpose of that is to model and, and to, to pursue a model of God's love for his people. And she just does it in such a great way. In that book, though, she makes this statement, and, and I want to apply it here. She says this, God's power to redeem is greater than Satan's power to destroy. So no matter what's been in your past, um, no, no matter what you may need to confess and take care of with the Lord, God wants to use that to destroy you. He wanted to use it to destroy um, David and the, and the nation. But God redeems it, and God keeps his story going. God's power to redeem is greater than Satan's power to destroy. And remember that no matter what's happened in your life, no matter what the events are, no matter what you need to confess or maybe what you have confessed and you may be experiencing the consequences of that, God can still redeem that and be with you through that in a way that advances his story. Before we get into the details of all of this, there are three transitions that take place. The leadership changes from warlords to kingship. From, from Samuel, Jephthah, all those guys, um, Samson, Othniel, it changes from that to now we have kings, okay? They go from a tribal league, the 12 tribes of Israel that are all divided and every now and then coming to help each other, from a tribal league to a united nation, and it's united for 120 years until it divides into two. And the other significant thing that happens is David moves the tabernacle from Shiloh to Jerusalem where the capital really is. So now let's get into our template of kind of what's going on in this story. Who, when, where, and why, okay? So let's start with who composed Samuel. Um, It's pretty clear that Samuel is involved in this because he's an eyewitness for what we know as 1 Samuel. So 1 Samuel is clearly written by Samuel. He's present for all the events, and the material moves chronologically. You can tell he's kind of telling the story of events that he's involved in. 2 Samuel, on the other hand... um, is written after Samuel's death. So Samuel's no longer writing, and it's arranged differently. It doesn't move chronologically. It moves more topically and theologically. It's not just narrating the story. But the whole thing is is put together because it's trying to communicate this, this movement from chaos and a mess through Saul, through David, into a, a kingdom that is united. Um, so when did the events happen? The events covered in the book of Samuel begin with the birth of Samuel, which I'm going to put around 1120 BC. Um, The Philistines come into this region in about 1200 BC. They go down to Egypt. They want to settle in Egypt, but the Egyptians push them away, and they end up settling on what we know today as the Gaza Strip. Um, There are five cities down there, uh, Gaza, Ashkelon, that are the cities of the Philistines. And so they, they settle in there, and they're a major problem during this time. So from the birth of Samuel around 1120, during the time of the judges, after the story of Ruth and sometime close to the time of Samson, Philistines are a major problem. This is when this is taking place. Um, the events continue from Samuel through his career. Um, in about 1084 is when he kind of becomes this, this judge, prophet, priest guy until he dies in 1021. The inauguration of the reign of Saul, which is 1050 to 1011, 
And well into the reign of David, likely just before his death, his reign is 1011 to 971. It's a total of 150 years that are covered during this period, okay? So that's, that's when we're talking about 150 years from the time of the judges until right before the death of David. Now, um, when, when was it composed? When was it put together? Here's what I would say. Samuel was likely assembled from this, from this chronological biography that Samson writes, and put together with some other stories. We don't know who put, the, who put it together. It could have been there are a couple of prophets that are candidates, Asher, Gad, Nathan. Those guys could have been involved in this. Samuel, this book of Samuel together was likely assembled, guided by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sometime in the divided monarchy in order to establish the legitimacy of the Davidic monarchy and provide a hope for the future Davidic king who would fulfill the ideals of kingship for God's chosen people. So this is in the beginning of that divided monarchy, the 400-year period. It's sometime in the beginning of that. And the reason we know that that's true is when the story is told, they seem to be aware of the difference between Israel and Judah. So the story is framed, and they mention Israel and Judah. But they don't mention this major event in 722 when Israel is taken away. So it's before that, probably early on in that period. Where were they? The original audience was living in the land of Israel near the beginning of this divided monarchy. Israel and Judah are separated nations at the time. And they're wondering how they ended up in the current mess and if there's any hope for the future. It's like, okay, we had the judges. That was a mess. Now we're united in the, under these kings. What do we do now? Because they're not doing so great. And this is trying to show, okay, the Davidic line is our hope, not Saul. Now, where were they? Well, um, basically, this is the area. Um, this is Saul's kingdom. This is going to be David's kingdom. It gets any, even bigger. Solomon is going to make it slightly bigger. Solomon is going to leave a divided kingdom. In the north, you're going to have Israel. In the south, you're going to have Judah. Again, Israel is taken away, uh, wiped out in 722 BC. We're mo- moving towards zero. 586 BC, the southern kingdom is going to be wiped out. So why was Samuel written? Samuel was written to show God's people that the Lord was instrumental in sovereignly bringing into existence the Davidic monarchy. It wasn't your choice of Saul. It's this choice that God made of David and his line. Not David, but really his line. Um, The Davidic monarchy, while still demonstrating that the Palestinian covenant, that's Leviticus 26, obedience brings blessing, disobedience brings discipline, repentance brings restoration, that Palestinian covenant that governs everything. God will accomplish his purposes, but our participation in it is based on our obedience because obedience brings blessing. Disobedience will bring discipline and repentance will bring restoration. The Davidic monarchy demonstrating that the Palestinian covenant was governing life in the land as they anticipated a true king to represent the world, uh, represent the Lord. So, Simply, why was it written? The sovereign Lord's always at work to bring about his plan and fulfill his purposes, regardless of how it may look at the time. And for the people who are getting it, the kingdom has divided. It's a mess. And they're going, where's God's hand in this? What is our hope for the future? And they're saying, the book is telling you, yes, it was a mess. You chose your guy. God got his guy in here, but he's not the solution. We're looking forward to something more. So, how and what? Well, this is pretty simple. There are three major characters. I've talked about this all uh, as well. Um, the first seven chapters really focus on Samuel. 
Then you're going to get a, a huge section that focuses on Saul. David is part of that. And then a, a large section, most of 2 Samuel is all about David. Um, you can see this as well with a bunch of different contrasts that take place. I'm going to highlight them. At the first of the book, you get this contrast between Eli and Samuel. Eli is a priest, um, and he can't hear the voice of the Lord. <laughs> um, he and his sons are involved in, in horrible uh, outrageous things going on in the temple. So much so that Eli, when uh, Hannah shows up to praise the Lord because God's answered a prayer and she's there praying, Samuel's first thought is, oh, she's drunk. Why? Because people were drunk at the temple all the time. In fact, his sons were drunk at the temple all the time. And you get this Eli who doesn't hear the voice of the Lord and Samuel who does hear the voice of the Lord. Then you get the story of the Ark of the Covenant and and God's people are starting to use, back up, but God's people are starting to use the Ark of the Covenant um, like magic. They, they take it into war thinking, if we take this into war, we're going to win. Well, the, the Ark gets captured because the people's faith is wrong. So the Ark gets captured by the Philistines, but then the Ark all by itself seems to go on a, on a battle campaign defeating the Philistines. It's great. Because what happens is where the ark is, that city gets a plague and they're dying. And they're like, we don't want this thing anymore. They take it to another city. Those people get wiped out. They take it to another city. And it's like the ark by itself is defeating the Philistines. Their god Dagon falls over and his head falls off. Um, And and eventually the Philistines say, you guys can have this thing back. And they tie it to some oxen and send it home. Um, (laughs) So the god of the ark is the one who's in charge here. Then there's this big contrast between Samuel and Saul. Samuel, who hears the voice of the Lord as a little boy, um, he hears the voice of the Lord. He goes, he thinks it's Eli at first, but then he realizes it's the voice of the Lord. And there's a huge contrast between Saul, who does not hear the voice of the Lord. And in particular, he should have listened to the voice of the Lord um, to not take captives, to not make this sacrifice until Samuel arrives. He doesn't hear the voice of the Lord. In fact, during the story, when Samuel arrives to condemn him and say the, the kingdom is being taken away from you, it's really interesting how what you hear there is the, there's listen, 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 and the same word for listen and hear, you hear the bleeding of the animals. <laughs> and, and Saul's listening to the animals instead of to the voice of the Lord. Samuel listens to the voice of the Lord uh, Saul does not. Then there's the contrast between Saul and David. And, and Saul, who just, um, he sins, David does too, but Saul defends himself and keeps moving away from the Lord, and eventually the Spirit leaves him. But David um, is brought into the kingdom, and, and you get this rise of David, kind of everything he's doing, it's going smashingly. It's great. It's success everywhere. He's driving out all of the, the Amorites and the Philistines. He's, he's being wise in everything he does. Um, and then he sins, and everything starts going downhill. And then at the end, there's this reflection that David has on his life, and David reflects on his life, comparing it with the life of Saul. A lot of contrast that take place in this book. So in the chart that's out there at the Connection Center, it's, it just moves really simply, Samuel, Saul, and David, okay? But within that, there's all of these contrasts that take place. Um, the, the, the content, okay, that's how it's arranged, What is it actually trying to say? Here's my big, long sentence that's at the bottom of the chart. The author used selected historical events from the time of the judges until sometime in David's reign in the time of the monarchy, about 150 years, to trace the spiritual standing of the nation before God. He's highlighting Samuel, the last judge, Saul, the people's choice for king, and David, the Lord's choice as king, who was the epitome of the Israelite person in covenant. 
He should be the example, reading the law all the time, keeping it with him, and living it out in front of the people. He does all of that in order to show that the same relationship with God, Palestinian covenant, obedience brings blessing, disobedience brings discipline, repentance brings restoration, that same relationship with God existed under the new monarchical period as existed before the monarchy, and to demonstrate that God's choice of king is the best choice, ultimately directing hope toward the coming king and his kingdom. Not David, but someone from David's line. Now, something happens at the beginning of the book that's fascinating. Um, At the beginning of the book, um, Hannah, um, who is the wife of Elkanah, she's loved by Elkanah, but but she doesn't have any children, and there's another wife of Elkanah, uh, Peniel, who's having all these children. By the way, this is the last... um, case of a commoner with more than one wife in the Bible. The kings do it, and it's not good. We'll see that, especially with Solomon. But Hannah doesn't have any children, and she prays that she will have a child, and she will dedicate that child to the Lord. That child is Samuel, whose name means God hears. God heard her prayer, and she comes back to dedicate this child to the Lord, and he's going to grow up in this, in this temple, and he's going to hear the voice of the Lord there. She writes a psalm in 1 Samuel 2. That psalm is amazing. Um, the psalm does a couple of things. I'm going to highlight, first of all, when Mary writes her psalm after Jesus is born, when Mary writes her psalm, Luke chapter 2, we call it the Magnificent. Mary's psalm is patterned after Hannah's song. Um, you can tell she's working with... Hannah had this birth that was really significant. And Mary goes, oh, I'm going to write a song. Here's a pattern for me to work with. The other thing that happens here is early in the book, the song of Hannah, um, it really kind of previews everything that's going to happen and directs our attention eventually to the king. Listen to the song of Hannah in chapter 2. My heart rejoices in the Lord. The Lord, my horn, is lifted up. Horn is a symbol for power and authority and kingship. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumble are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for, full, for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who, see, she who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons languishes. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts up the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in places of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That's exactly what happens in the book. (laughs) Hannah is is looking and Hannah uh, almost prophetically is delivering this message. So what do we do with with all this message? What do I do with it? Okay. Um, So what? 
We've danced a little bit in church. You've got a historical, a bunch of dates that you can't keep straight. Um, what do we do with all this? Some things I think we need to really grapple with and believe here. Even spiritual leaders can be very corrupt, so don't put your attention on spiritual leaders, not me. It's not about me. It's not about our church. It's about God and his story that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So keep your eyes on Jesus. And remember that humans judge based on outward appearance, but God examines your heart. So focus on your heart, not your standing in the world. The book also shows us that it's easy to start strong and finish poorly, especially when you have power. And you may not have big power, but you may be getting little bits of power. Maybe it's just the power to drive now, or the power to determine your own bedtime, or the power because you're supervising people, or the power to control your own schedule. The consequences of sin are inevitable and significant. Forgiveness is real, but consequences are significant. And the Lord will always accomplish his plans and fulfill his promises. I think we believe that, because that's what this story um, embodied in the life of Samuel and Saul and David. That's what this story shows us. So how should we behave? Focus more, maybe even exclusively, but focus more on the condition of your heart than popularity in your community, whatever that community happens to be. Confess your sins boldly, Claim full forgiveness in spite of ongoing consequences. There may be consequences to your sinful behavior. Confess that. Don't cover it. Confess it, embrace forgiveness, and recognize that even through the consequences, when you confess and embrace that forgiveness, God is now with you through the consequences. Lean toward God rather than making excuses when you fail. And take a long-range view of life. Do what it takes to end well. Recently, about a year ago, I asked two men in our body, to begin to meet with me, and we meet on Thursday mornings after I teach a Bible study here at 6 o'clock. We meet, I meet with them at 7 o'clock. And, and about a year ago, I asked them this. I said, I need you two men who I believe have finished well. They're older than me. I said, here's what I, I need. I need you to help me finish well. Finish well in my marriage. Help me finish well as a parent. Help me finish well in my ministry. I want to finish well, and I've, and I've got two men who I've asked to help me finish well. Make it your goal to finish well. I'll fall. I, I won't be perfect, but I want to be leaning to the Lord until my last days. So where does all this fit? <laughs> it's a transition from this chaotic tribal confederacy guided by warlords to a centralized theocracy with a king that's pointing us to the king, Jesus. And it focuses on the Davidic dynasty, not their choice through Saul. He's a Benjamite, but through David, who's from the tribe of Judah. Now we're in the right line, now focused on the family of David, with a clear covenant promise to establish an eternal reign through one of his descendants fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So what are some next steps? Where do we go from here? (laughs) Prioritize your passion for Jesus over your popularity in the world. Make passion for Jesus, falling in love with him more and more all the time. Make that your passion more than whether you're popular in your community. It may not be worldwide popularity, um, but in in your little group, are you more worried about your popularity than your passion for Jesus? Confess any sin you're aware of and embrace the grace of forgiveness. There's no sin you can commit 
David, adultery and murder. There's no sin you can commit that God won't forgive you for if you simply just say, I have sinned against the Lord. And make it a long-term goal to finish well. 